Hello, and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by Hybrid Links. Your host is Sultan Ghaznawi with today's episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Translation Company Talk podcast. As you know, I always try to find topics that I would personally like to know about and my goal is to share that knowledge from seasoned veterans and experts in our industry with everyone interested because knowledge is a resource which is best used collectively. Today, I am excited to be speaking with Duncan Shaw about a very specific and niche subject matter. I have invited Duncan to cover the subject of translating content for clinical trials for CROs. This is a highly regulated part of the industry and Duncan brings in a wealth of knowledge and experience. Let me provide you with some context and background regarding my guest today. Duncan began his career in financial services in New York and later continued this path while at GlaxoSmithKline where he first became exposed to clinical trials and international life sciences markets. This experience paved the way for his start in localization in 1997 at DTS Language Services, which is headquartered in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. DTS was originally created in 1973 as Duke Translation Services, the language hub for Duke University, its hospital system and associated Duke entities. In 2005, Duncan was part of a private acquisition of DTS and became its second owner and president. Now in its 49th year of operations, DTS specializes in life science content translation and localization for leading life science organizations worldwide. During his tenure, Duncan has directed numerous teams of translators, clinical specialists, and project managers to cohesively apply linguistic solutions using team-driven technology approaches. He has overseen over 25,000 translation orders of all sciences in over 100 languages and in doing so helped advance hundreds of clinical studies for pharmaceutical sponsors, contract research organizations, institutional review boards, medical device and biotechnology organizations, among other life sciences clientele worldwide. DTS lives and abides by its credo, which is every word counts and every person matters. Welcome to the Translation Company Talk, Duncan. Well, thank you very much, Sultan. I appreciate you having me today. I am so glad that uh, I have you on this show. Uh, there are a lot of people who would be very happy to hear from you. But uh, before we get started, please say a few words about yourself and about your work in, in the language industry. Well, sure. I'm Duncan Shaw. I'm president of DTS Language Services. We are headquartered in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina in the U.S. And we are coming on 50 years old. So we are one of those old standing granddaddy translation companies that maybe a lot of people have never heard of, but we've been around a long time and hope to continue to be around. Thank you. There's a lot of history in there. So 50 years is how old the company is. But how did you find yourself in this industry? Was it by choice or an accident? You know, a lot of people like to say, I kind of fell into this and I kind of fell into that and I'm not going to go there. <laughs> uh, I came out of college working in financial services and I learned about the time value of money. I learned about planning. I learned about business planning and financials. And at some point I was working for GlaxoSmithKline, back then Glaxo Welcome, in right. stock options administration. And I enjoyed that role, but I didn't like working for a large lockstep company. I realized I wasn't happy there, so I began to look around at other opportunities and interview. And I remember coming home from my interview after 
DTS and my wife said, well, how did it go? And I said, well, I can tell you which offer I'm not going to get. I'm not going to get an offer from this DTS language services. The reason is Sultan, I had a fever. I had an awful sickness and I showed up to the interview soaking wet because there was a torrential thunderstorm. I didn't bring an umbrella. I was trying to tell myself off in the men's room before I went up to the interview. I did the best I could. I was seeing three of the interviewer, even though there was just one person and I was trying to look in the middle. <laughs> and sure enough, that was the offer that I got. They said that I sounded very relaxed and confident and nonchalant. <laughs> so little did they know why. And I learned about the translation and localization field the hard way as an outsider. So many different cultural variants, but that's the spice that made it fascinating and interesting and invigorating. But I took my knocks and I learned the hard way after many years. I went into project management. Uh, as a matter of fact, my very first week, I remember my manager saying, here's 78 pages of Arabic. You need to go in to visit with the client and research triangle and come back with a sale. So go ahead and ask me if I made the sale. Did you? No. I did not, <laughs> but I, I began to learn a lot. And that was the beginning of a long journey. I had the opportunity after several years of working with the company and working at my way up the ranks and putting out fires to acquire it with a partner in 2005, which I did. Okay. And that was a seven figure investment at the time. And I wasn't sure if it was the right move or not, but I had always wanted to own a business. I was passionate about language services and I saw potential in it. So right. lo and behold, here we are today in 2022. Wow, what a history. Now, Duncan, uh, I'm interested to know about your perspective of this industry, you know, since you joined uh, and the way you obviously entered this industry is also fascinating. How did things evolve and change during your tenure in this industry? What stood out to you? Uh, what has actually, um, you know, impacted you uh, from the time that you started with DTS until today? Well, there's always been a lot of industry posturing, as there are in many industries. Who's right. bigger? Who has more offices? Who has more prominence? Who has more certifications in this or that, the other thing? And in this era of big data, of AI, of machine translation that impacts all of our lives, I realized that as a smaller business, we represent the voice of small business uh, in translation localization that we couldn't compete with that. We couldn't compete with that noise. So I decided let's hide in plain sight. And our motto right. became every word counts and every person matters. And I believed in that because I came across so many translators and people have such a misguided notion of what translation really is. And translators are so committed and work so hard and are often unheralded with the hard work that they do that goes unrecognized. Right. And I really saw that it came down to the micro and not the macro. And I think that in our zeal to grow and our zeal to look ahead for the future, so many of us fail to just look at today, where we are today, where we are at this moment. And that became our differentiator in a way. So part of what I'm saying is the more things change, the more they stay the same. Because what happened in the 60s, 70s and 80s, I mean, DTS was started in 1973, is largely going on today. You have translators right. working maybe with different tools and technology as technology has grown and expanded, but so much is the same. And what I have noticed since about 2000, I think in many industries, sometime around 2000, there was much greater interest and reliance on return on investment, especially for institutions that became publicly traded companies. What mm -hmm. really counted was return on investment. And so there was massive 
that was the start of massive client acquisition and mergers and acquisitions and translation localization and so many other industries. So I've noticed that for sure, like we have over the past 15 to 20 years increasingly, so many people come up to me and say, you're not supposed to be here. Why weren't you gobbled up by one of the big box enterprise translation companies by now? So we staunchly have remained independent. But my message is really the more things change, the more they stay the same nowadays, just with changing technology. Right. And with all of this that you've witnessed in the past few years, how do you see this industry heading into the future? Oh, my crystal ball is in the shop right now, of course, so we don't know. <laughs> uh, I think that technology, of course, is going to become more and more prominent. Whether machine translations and machines uh, replace the human entirely is anybody's guess. We've been hearing since the 70s that automation and technology were going to replace human translators. And it has yet to fully happen. It's escalating. I think that there's going to be a mushrooming need for language services in general. Depending on the source, we hear about 30 to $50 billion a year industry in language services. I don't see that shrinking. I think that the more technology and machine translation comes into play, the more that will introduce work for traditional language service needs and all varieties of needs. The industry is enormously splintered. It's enormously fragmented. So I think there's huge opportunity for anyone that has an interest and strong desire to go into it, whatever their their goals may be. Well, today, um, you know, I, I would like to speak to you about uh, uh, our industry and about your expertise, something you do every day. I would like us to discuss delivering uh, exceptional translation services for clinical trials and working with CROs or contract research organizations. That's what it stands for, I guess. G give me a high level view of what this space looks like. Mm. I would say the encapsulating phrase in the life sciences, clinical science market is risk mitigation. Right. There is so much at stake if you have a 50 or $100 million clinical trial, if you have medical device products and they're trying to be re released and approved in Europe, new biotechnology entrants into the field, that there's a very staunchly conservative nature of the buying market. So they are concerned about pain and risk avoidance much more so than they are potential gain. So I think that you have to start with that. You have to have a very conservative localization outlook. Close enough isn't good enough. And it almost becomes obsessive, it almost becomes extreme. But a lot of buyers in the clinical space are looking for exactness. And I think what helped DTS become more favorable to that is many years ago, we started out gaining a reputation in patent translation. Right. And as you may know, translating patents is about the most ultra specific of endeavors as there is. It is so incredibly detailed and specific. I myself was tasked with proofreading patent translations into English, and I probably have proofread hundreds of them, Dutch to English, Spanish to English, French to English. It just goes on and on. And I think that became a good crucible for DTS to go into clinical trials in the life sciences space because of that conservative nature, because of that risk mitigation outlook, and the fact that Little hinges swing big doors here. If you get something wrong, there can be enormous consequences. So there's constant paranoia. In translation, as you know, Sultan, we're always second guessing ourselves. We're always trying to be perfections, uh, perfectionists. And I think that just goes up by a factor of 10 in, in the clinical space. Wow. Well, uh, thank you for that introduction to this area. I, I know that this is a very sensitive space when it comes to errors and, and accuracy, but let's talk about you know, something different. So let's talk about your organization, what it does uh, and this specific mission. How did you find success here? I 
think that we found success by focusing on what I consider relatability, right. listening, good intake procedures, and trust. I think in the world today, whether we're talking about our next door neighbors, whether we're talking about our fellow colleagues in an industry, whether we're talking about our leaders, there is a huge scarcity of trust. And for whatever reason, people have looked to me and said, ah, probably this guy doesn't have sharp axes in the back of his trunk. Or if he does have axes, hopefully they're dull. And they've said, let's hit, hit our wagons with DTS. Let's give them a try. I think when the you know what hits the fan in life and things really get serious, people look into each other's eyeballs and say, can I trust you? And there's this reptilian brain response that we have, friend or foe, can I trust this person? Can I work for this person? Do I want to trust my career, my job, my family's livelihood with this organization? And I think that DTS has excelled in a micro way in forming trust and then following through on that, make, uh, admitting when we make mistakes, which we do too, we're human, but being there, being accountable and growing partnership. And that's an overused cliched word partnership, but that is the crucible of what DTS has formed as a relationship is connectivity and trust. Uh, are we relatable to a buyer? Um, sometimes we're not. We have to consider different cultural types of organizations, different types of personalities at the helm, different decision makers, different needs. Sometimes we're not the best fit. Right. But, uh, but those are, I think, the three words for me. It's connectivity, relatability, and trust. So speaking of trust, uh, let me actually ask you to tell me how do you manage that uh, trust deficit that exists today in the world? How do you present DTS and your entire team and yourself, obviously, um, to, to a potential client that would uh, want to do business with DTS? How do you want, how do you earn their trust uh, if they have never done business with you before? There's a wonderful book by Todd Calpone called The Transparency Sale. And that really changed my outlook a few years ago. And we've always been rather transparent. So instead of keeping your cards close to the vest, I think that we've decided to be open. I think that people don't trust Amazon reviews and five-star reviews the way that you, they used to. They trust three or four-star reviews. So right. I would much rather enter a prospective buyer or bid situation and say, you know, we are not the big box enterprise company that you may be looking for. We're a small micro company. We're responsive. You're going to have the mobile number of the president. But if you're looking for that big box entrepreneurial um, enterprise level company, we're not it. So I think that that helps a lot, again, in uh, opening your proverbial kimono and, and building trust from the get go. Let's actually uh, look at, uh, again, clinical trial space and let's break down what translation in this space uh, includes and how is it different from a standard translation project? Uh, I know that it's uh, accuracy is super important here. So uh, please walk us through how, what a typical project looks like. I think that what we try to do is understand what the goal and objective of the localization need, what the translation need is to begin with. And sometimes we will challenge our buyers and our audience. Why do you need this translation done? What does success look like for you when it's done and over with? Is it measurable? Can you tell us if it was a success or not? Sometimes the answer is we simply need to have this to comply with regulatory requirements. That's it. I was just told to get a translation quote and that's it. But if you've got an 80 country, uh, you know, 100 language need for patient recruitment documents, for testing, for all manner of life science clinical needs, it becomes more complex rather quickly. Right. Um, so I think that it stems with being able to articulate your translation convention, your translation philosophy. Everybody thinks they know what translation means, but if you ask 
100 different people. Maybe you don't get 100 different opinions, but you're going to get dozens. Right. You're going to hear people say, well, I want my Chinese translation to not read like a translation. And I kind of say, well, why not? That's what it is. We have some CROs and some clinical buyers say it's okay if this reads like a translation. This is not a Harry Potter novel. This is not literary translation. So I think being able to articulate your translation convention and your philosophy with your vetted translators, with your staff, so that everyone is on the same page. The biggest failure of translation companies is to convey expectations, is to be able to know what your expectations are and to share them so that they go across different cultures and languages and staff levels. And you might not completely all be on the same page, but you should all be largely on the same page. In clinical trials translations, yes, it has to be exact. So when we speak with new translators, Sultan, we might say, you have to abide and be faithful to the source content. Well, guess what? Every translator says, that. oh, yes, yes, uh, I'm faithful to the source content. I get that. And I'm saying, I don't know if you know how literal and specific we really mean. We don't <laughs> want you to add supporting little prepositions and phrases or little omissions, because really, who cares, right? The French reader, you know, the CRO doesn't read French here. If we add a few helping words or don't literally include every word, who's going to know? And I think there are many cases where that's exactly what goes on and no one does know. Uh, do you happen to play any tennis, Sultan, by any wild chance? I've never asked you this. Uh, I'm not a tennis player, but I watch tennis often and, and I love that, that game. So if you and I are playing an informal game of tennis at the park, do you know what right. a foot fault is? A foot fault is where the server can't cross the service line with their toe during the serve right. or they get there's a fault for that. Well, if you and I are playing a friendly game of tennis in the park, probably we aren't going to call foot faults on each other. Maybe maybe we are. I hope not. I hope you're not that competitive. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, so if we're not going to call foot faults, though, what's to stop me or you from walking right up to the net and pounding the ball over? The reason I make this analogy is with respect to our translation convention and our philosophy. If you're not going to be very tight and very rigid and adding an extra preposition, omitting a helping word because I want to help my people, whatever the rationale might be, if that's okay, this quickly becomes a very slippery slope into writing whatever you want in the Spanish, writing whatever you want in the German, the Romanian, the Italian. This goes on routinely. This happens very often. Most of the time, there are not consequences until there are, and that's the problem. And I'm assuming you have a process in place. So let's talk about that, Duncan. Please share a few thoughts on, on designing a process to, to do exactly that for translating clinical trials or working with CROs in general that yields uh, good results again and again. It's repeatable. Yes, and this is the holy grail that we're all seeking, right? Uh, right. It starts, I think you'd agree, with well-written English, well-written source language, if it's not English. It starts hopefully with content that is suitable for translation. Most of the time in the United States, translation is an afterthought. It's a bolt-on, it's an add-on. Right. We receive documents all of the time, unfortunately, that haven't been spell and grammar checked, they have apparent omissions, they have poor punctuation, they have inconsistencies, they have inserted comments, they aren't clean and ready to go. We wonder if they've been approved or who in the world approved them. So you've got to start with that. That would be my first advice. If you have good documentation that's well-written and suitable for translation for, again, what your objectives are. 
a patient recruitment document is going to be different than an informed consent is going to be different than a medical label is going to be different from an IFU. Right. So if you have good claim documentation to begin with, if you have a clearly disseminated translation philosophy with your linguists, if there is an editor and checking validation process by another qualified party, um, I think much of the time, Sultan, the editing review QA process has been bypassed today. It has been bypassed well beyond what most buyers understand and recognize. I don't know if you agree with me or not there. Uh, I do, I do, yes. Um, so there has to be well-written documentation. It has to be translated by the right person. There's no putting the toothpaste back in the tube if the wrong translator is selected. It has to be properly edited and checked. And a good validation process does not mean redoing the translation. Not everyone can be an editor of a translation. Right. You've got to have restraint, which is very difficult. Um, it's got to be checked one more time for formatting, for consistency. It's got to run through automation tools for grammatical diagnostic checks and things that can save time and energy for sure. Uh, but I think that the human review of it one last time before it goes to the end buyer is critical as well. But uh, the most important gradient, I think, is the selection of the lead translator. Right. And speaking of which, uh, you know, uh, do you, as a supplier to CROs, uh, work with them to develop things such as uh, specifications and guidelines on how um, these processes work and, and what type of requirements you should mandate from the translators and so on? Or is this something that the clients must uh, do themselves in order to to you know work with multiple vendors and and deliver a consistent experience? Yeah, that's a great question. Generally, we defer to the market. Uh, many of our life science and and CRO sponsor buyers, IRBs, they all have their own independent checks and balance systems. They all have their own developmental procedures of when a document is ready and approved. So we don't believe in correcting content in a foreign language, we have to exactly mirror what has been portrayed and read. For very good reason, there are organizational compliance reasons and committee approval uh, events that happen beyond our scope of understanding. So I strongly believe in sharing translator remarks and suggestions and recommendations, but we can't just apply those things, those elements ourselves, even if there's a strong chance that we're probably right. What if we're not right? What if there are underlying reasons? You have to be so conservative in the pharmaceutical world and life sciences and be an advocate for clients, be an advocate for all of these parties, but you can't just make judgments and you can't apply language without permission and clarity. Absolutely. The, the question, I guess, was more focused towards uh, how you communicate this need for accuracy and sticking to a specific language or brand or style. Uh, to to the translators when you have multiple people involved? Or how does the client do this when they have multiple vendors involved like DTS or maybe there's another organization that's also working there? So uh, because accuracy in this space is uh, of absolute, you know, premium importance, uh, paramount importance that is. So how how do we do this? Who comes up with that guidelines or, or specifications for translation? Uh, I think it's the Wild West, to be quite blunt. I think I, we see everything across the board, and I bet you do as well. Over the years, I've been interviewed by tech companies and tech markets to perform $100,000 website localization projects based on our sample translation of a sales letter that they awarded right. those decisions to us. Completely outlandish apples to oranges situations. We've seen translation evaluations by buyers that were completely inappropriate. Uh, we've performed English back translations 
of documents. And we've had buyers run a compare file of the back translated content against the source content and say, look at all these errors. This looks like a Christmas tree here. Mm -hmm. So there's rampant ignorance of language and what quality translation means. And that stems back to what the goal of the organization's translation is to begin with. Right, right. This podcast is made possible with sponsorship from Hybrid Links, a human-in-the-loop provider of translation and data collection services for healthcare, education, legal, and government sectors. Visit hybridlinks.com to learn more. When you're dealing with CROs in particular, what do they look for in a partner in order to acquire um, good translation output? What is important to them that a company like DTS should build KPIs around that? So, you know, you know exactly what the clients want and you you have success metrics that you have to hit all the time. I think in the case of the CRO market, they're more in the business and sales trenches. Right. And if it is linguistically acceptable and it's not going to cause any adverse events, if you will, to the study, then that's the primary directive. They're trying to consent a patient at a site in Cincinnati by next Tuesday. How quickly can you get these 12 consent form translations done? Is it going to be certified? Is it going to be ready to go? Perhaps the most KPI, uh, most important KPI is going to be timeliness. Time is always the enemy in translation, as you know. So we require a 95% or higher on-time delivery rate. And I don't know what the industry standard is. Maybe you have some better background uh, than me on that. But I know Sultan is not close to 95%. It's not. I think it's around 89% in my personal opinion. I don't know if there's even a benchmark for it. Yeah. Uh, and 89% to me is pretty darn good. But would you or I eat at a restaurant with the cleanliness and sanitation sticker that says 89? So it's low. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it becomes relative, right? And there are numerous stakeholders that the CRO and different parties involved. If you're a day or three late, if you're a day or two late with the translation, that's a big deal. That affects a lot of dominoes and a lot of plans in effect and a lot of milestones. So if there's been an acquisition of a company in France and 14 manuals have to be translated and there's a hard deadline date and a lot of things happen after that, if there's if the translations are late, if they're incomplete, that holds up so many other mile markers. It's kind of like the last mile to what often is a billion dollar infrastructure. And there again, that's where that little hinges swing big doors analogy comes back into play. Right. And every word counts and every person matters, right? So that's where it matters critically. Let's let's uh, shift gears and talk about what gets translated in uh, in this space and clinical uh, trials and so forth. But first of all, who creates them and what does the output looks like that gets translated? You already mentioned about zero tolerance or the small amount of tolerance for errors and obviously it needs to be super accurate. You have multiple parties reviewing and QAing, validating that it's correct. But let's go back to the, the you know upstream. Who creates these content and, and how do they look like? Well, as vendors in the service, we wish we knew about more of this ourselves. We receive source documents. We are told they're approved to translate them into these five languages, into these 20 languages, into Spanish with back translation, whatever the case may be. We know in clinical trials, of course, that the IRB, the Institutional Review Board, is responsible for protecting the welfare of the patient, approving documents. A document cannot be used in a clinical trial that has not been IRB approved. And often central IRBs and other IRBs will provide template documents and create the documents as well as approve them. Other times we hear of documents that have been drafted by other parties, but they're IRB approved. 
it depends on the type of document. Is it a patient recruitment document? Is it a patient diary? Is it a case report form? Is it the protocol? Is it a landing page on the web for a patient? Is it patient forwarding or not? Um, a big problem in translation in the United States is that it's simply not regulated to begin with. And this is something that I like to educate a lot of life science buyers about. Anyone who is bilingual in the US can put their sign on a shingle and provide clinical translations. Mm -hmm. So this is why you hear about so many botched translations that threaten the integrity of a clinical trial, regardless if the documents have been approved to begin with. Do you think that standardization, such as the ISO standards and so forth, if people are, if organizations are certified against those, they would provide an extra layer of confidence to CROs or other clinical research type of buyers that may need accuracy, um, you know, knowing that their vendor is certified, someone has audited them, and there is a certain degree of trust in there. Or, or would you see rather regulation in place? I think that ISO and other certifications are what I might describe as a professional feather in one's cap. Right. Uh, if a particular translator is organizationally certified, what does that mean? Have they written a check enough times until they pass the exam? I think that that denotes a certain professional commitment and all things being equal, we would view that translator with, uh, as I say, a, a feather in their cap. I think that any of us would feel better driving over a bridge that has been structurally certified so I see the absolute critical nature and validation of certifications in some instances. However, in language services, I have seen organizations that are ISO and other certified uh, uh, holdings, and it's all over the board in terms of consistency, of quality, of process. And so I wouldn't necessarily say by default that an ISO certification is the panacea, is the answer to everything. It's one plank in the process. It's a very important plank. Mm -hmm. And I see the value in it. I see the inherent value in bettering an organization. However, I also see it often as a check mark on a form more than anything else. You really have to do your due diligence as a buyer about who you're hitching your wagon with and really ask hard questions. And if the translation company, how willing are they to answer those questions and to you know, open the curtain behind the Wizard of Oz or not? Right, right. So let's let's actually talk about how a translation company is different uh, that specializes in this sector versus others. Uh, can you share a few words about the makeup of your production team? Do you need people that specialize in this vertical in order to execute translation of clinical trials? This is a this is a great question too. A lot of people think by nature that a someone in the uh, professionals. Uh, uh, Trends, uh, doctors, lawyers, engineers are going to make fantastic engineers. And often these are the professionals, these are the linguists that we have the most trouble with. Really? So, yes. And the reason is by virtue of their rigorous training. Let's take medical doctors, physicians. They can't help themselves so often by correcting the text in the translation. And it begins that slippery slope between translating what is actually said in the source content and revision, rewriting, editing it. Um, making editorial copywriting suggestions. Maybe we're going to move this adverse event bullet point from the fourth place down to the second place. Maybe I'm going to provide an acronym explanation at the bottom of this table because it doesn't exist in the source English. This happens all the time with professionals. They just can't help themselves, I think, by their training. And their subject matter expertise is invaluable, no doubt about it. 
But I think that what was worked best for us is about a one-third, one-third, one-third breakdown of people in clinical trials as far as our linguist field force. The first third of that tends to be MDs or PhDs, typically in one of the hard sciences. They've got to be subject matter experts. Right. The second third of linguists that we find best works for clinical trials are former career professionals that worked in life sciences in a former career and went into translation afterwards. Maybe they were a hospital administrator in Switzerland. Maybe they worked for a pharmaceutical company in Canada or New Jersey. Uh, maybe they were a nurse or radiology assistant. So they understand the field, but they aren't necessarily an MD or PhD. Mm -hmm. And I think the third group of our uh, field force that works best in this in this recipe, if you will, are true polyglots, true linguists who know what dictionaries and glossaries and terminology bases to consult. So whereas the subject expert might say, the only thing that matters is one doctor talking to another doctor, one clinician talking to another clinician, the true linguist is going to say, well, you know, <laughs> consistency does matter. Absolutely. Patient retention is going to matter. So we have to adhere to these certain language standards, whereas the subject matter expert tends to downplay that a little bit. And you've got to find a harmony between all of those. Understood. Duncan, given the sensitive nature of the content that a translation company will come across in translating research material like clinical trials, what, what type of cybersecurity, data protection, and, and other types of safeguards should be in place to ensure compliance with, with laws such as HIPAA or, uh, you know, there's several other uh, health-related regulations. Do you have to uh, wrestle with those in order to make sure that you're always compliant? I think that the answer to that is that you have to invest in a cut above what you think the minimum is going to be. Uh, data protection, cybersecurity today, it's of paramount importance to me personally and professionally for DTS. Right. So we've made investments uh, with our servers and IT infrastructural investments that encrypt data, of course, but that we mandate certain conventions amongst our staff with password managers, with password changes, even with our clients. And so, yes, it's a headache to have to change passwords and to have to do updates and two-factor authentication. Absolutely it is, but there's no choice. There's no choice in this day and age. The escalation of data breaches and information uh, losses and being shared with improper parties is escalating at very high levels. This threatens the integrity of clinical trials. It threatens the safety of patient information. So part of it is we have to dovetail with the buying organization's requirements. So if they require that no documents end up in the cloud in one shape, form, or another, then we adhere to that. If they require that machine translation is not used, which some of our buyers, by the way, specify that, then that's the protocol that we have to follow. So. Again, that intake procedure in listening to a CRO and listening to a, a pharmaceutical company, uh, you don't want to prevent the documents from being used because some convention was not adhered to when it comes to cybersecurity. So you've really got to invest in a standard beyond the minimum today with that. Let's shift our focus to the supply side. Uh, what type of translators do well with healthcare in general, and in particular with translation of clinical trials? You mentioned that you work with doctors and, and other healthcare professionals. Are there any specific qualifications that make them a better fit? I guess this question is more to answer um, you know, those thoughts or, or uh, inquiries that freelancers within our industry listening to this podcast may have. How can they enter this space? 
I think that if you have, uh, most translators in general have hyperattention to detail. This is one of the things I love about translators. As much as we love our own content, our own websites, our own uh, help documentation, our own training manuals, no one will read it harder than a translator will. So you've got to have passionate attention to detail. I think attention to detail is actually lacking uh, today. I don't know if you agree with me, Sultan, but there are so many people that think they have attention to detail that they do not. I agree with you 100%. Uh, it, it, it's a funny thing. It's, it's a quirky skill. So we find that the translators that succeed in the clinical trial space are those that have a hyperattention to detail. There are good listeners that take feedback well. There are some translators that do not take feedback well. We regularly provide feedback for translators. And if we don't see change, desired change, if they're not willing to work with us, then we don't work with them. It has to be that cut and dry. It is the linguists who are open to feedback and by the way, we have to be open to feedback as well, too. No one right. has all the answers. Uh, but stemming with our translation convention and our requirements and our translation philosophy, they have to be able to grow and learn. So it's not our responsibility to train them. They have to come on board with a certain level of senior level accomplished training to begin with. But if you are open to feedback and suggestion and receptive to that, those are the ones that grow faster and, and uh fall in line with this. Our primary medical Spanish translation team started, gosh, in 1988. And back then, they are not where they are today. And that just came from a willingness to fall down. Uh, by any chance, do you ski or no? Uh, I don't. My kids do, but I don't. <laughs> so the fastest way I bet that they learned how to ski was by falling down. Right. And the same with being a new translator in the clinical trials or other space, you've got to be willing to make mistakes and put yourself out there and grow. Talk to other linguists more senior than you. I think that more people are willing to help others along if they're willing to listen and take feedback. And how do you determine if a translator is qualified and competent to handle tr translation of uh, clinical trials in their language? Well, you know, for example, if you need a new translator to join your team, what's the process like? There are some baseline requirements that we have. We'll say you must have five years minimum full-time proven translation experience. But really, we're looking for senior level people with decades of experience under their belt who have translated similar documentation in the pharma world hundreds and hundreds of times. They've done this. It's old hat. It's what they specialize in. We aren't going to be all things to all people in all markets. And so we look for linguists that have those earmarks. And it's pretty telling usually when you find them. Sometimes the uh, you know, they can pull the, the wool over your eyes a little bit, but not usually. Um, one thing that we do not believe in are free translation samples. I think that translation samples are the bane of the industry. They've long been controversial. I think that there are cases where other parties are performing translation samples. You just don't know. There's not a foolproof method. There's always an interview vetting process that we have. We want to speak live and see live our translators. A big problem, I think, in localization today is that there's this idea of the business development people, the sales reps, the C-level people meeting as generals and, and treating the translators as if there's some sort of, you know, cannon fodder down on the field, and they don't even know who is carrying out the translations. I've heard previous guests on your podcast show talk about this idea while they're resources. They're not really our resources. And we don't take that view. We take a different view that we don't own the resource as an independent translator. 
unless they're an, an employee per se, but we want to bring them in as part of the DTS family, and we very much do want to know them. We want to know what credentials they've received, what awards they've received. We want to know their pitfalls and foibles and strengths. So uh, I think that a problem is that not enough translation companies get to know as individuals the translators themselves. When we have our interview sultan and speak with translators, I can tell you time and time again, they say no one has asked us to do this. This is so refreshing. I can't believe this, that someone actually cares and wants to talk with me. And that begins the cementing process of, of trust. And if they have 10 other translation job requests and ours is number 11, we hope that they'll take ours. Absolutely. Uh, Duncan, you talked about this briefly earlier, but uh, I want you to provide some additional details on this. I know that accuracy and correctness, completeness is of absolute uh, paramount importance here in clinical trial uh, translations. But what are the implications of bad translation for clinical trials? What happens if an incorrect translation is submitted? There's not a lot out there that you'll find that talks about this, but I think inherently we know of some bad outcomes. I think at worst, you could have potential patient fatalities in a clinical trial. You could Loss have- Loss of life. Yes, yes. You could have minor or significant adverse effects suffered by a patient in a clinical trial. Um, you could have a $100 million clinical trial shut down by a breach of patient confidentiality or a mistranslation. You have to be so careful and judicious because the consequences are very severe consequences going all the way back to non-disclosure agreements. And so I think there are numerous potential bad consequences, uh, none of which any of us want. We don't even enjoy talking about them, but I think it's imperative that we acknowledge them. A trial could Absolutely. get shut down. Uh, an arm of a trial could get shut down. A product launch for a biotechnology company that has been in the works for 10 years or longer could be canceled. Uh, like they say, Sultan, the pen is mightier than the sword. I think that the written word and translation can cause beautiful, wonderful openings and huge advances in life, as well as tremendous setbacks, potentially. I would like you to please talk to us about training and uh, the importance of continuous improvement in the execution cycle. How do you handle that? And uh, what is the role and involvement of client, the LSP, and uh, the translation execution team, which in other words means the translators, editors, and others? So that's a, a great question. I think that we have to be lifelong learners in general. That's a phrase that people toss around a lot. Internally, our staff have certain continuing education requirements that they must meet every year. And that entails life sciences learning about the industry right. and goings on. That entails translation technology, translation memory tools. That entails grammatical, diagnostic, and, and quality checking tools. The question fundamentally is, where is the individual right now in their growth process? Where are the shortcomings and what do we need to address? Where have there been problems potentially? Um, what required excessive time? What we're trying to avoid is a repeat of problems that can be avoided. And I think training and learning are critical in that nature. Um, I always encourage anyone to just devote 30 minutes a day to trying to learn something new about language, about business, about your industry. So we have a required number of hours for internal training purposes. Um, and we encourage group discussions with our translators to talk about terminology approaches, style guide enhancements, 
shared collaboration. And like I said earlier, we invite feedback from translators all over the world for their viewpoints. And we really want to listen and try to learn as well. So zooming out, uh, let's talk about the current state of this specific niche market. Given the pandemic still lingering, you know, in some form and degree, the global economy is somewhat slowing down and so on. How does this field fare out compared to other industries um, in terms of uh, its outlook? I feel that there is going to be continued growth in life sciences and clinical trials translations. It might slow down, it might dip a little bit. We've seen some decline in some markets. We've seen a little bit of decline in biotechnology markets that five years ago, seven, ten years ago were much stronger. And we've seen pop-up growth in some other areas. So people are going to continue to seek advances in the drug discovery process. There's going to always be pipeline needs. There's going to always be clinical trial translation needs when we look at health sciences to begin with. But I think as a field, it's different than aerospace, financial services. It's different than automotive. It's different than sectors that have been particularly hit hard and clearly hit hard. I think there's going to be a bubble of protection, Sultan. But I think in the short run, there might be uh, some slowdowns. And that's something that we have to just be conscious of and to look ahead the crest of the hill and to talk to our clients and say, what are you seeing from your clients? How is growth happening for you? What are hiring patterns anticipated for you? And sometimes that's difficult to get because these guys hold their cards so close to the vest. Right. And would you say, Duncan, our industry or the translation and localization field in general still has a lot of ground to cover with clinical trials? Are there areas that can be exploited further that haven't been touched yet? The short answer is yes, there, there clearly are. And I think that's happening more and more every day. As you know, with your own expertise in rare languages, Sultan, I think right. there's a huge audience that is underrepresented when we look at uh, languages used on the internet and the number of languages. People talk about 7,000 known languages and the number of languages that are becoming extinct, the number of prominent languages used in business and clinical trials, where there's money flow when we look at a macro picture. But I think that there are going to be opportunities in interpreting. I think there are going to be opportunities in multimedia localization that grow. Um, The gurus have been talking about this for a number of years, as you know, and we're seeing more and more of that. Uh, I think there are going to be opportunities for things like e-consent localization and decentralized clinical trials has become a movement that's gaining steam. Duncan, what are your thoughts on automation in this area? I mean, as things are evolving with technology and digitization and so forth, do you think it is a better candidate than other industries such as legal or engineering? And and how can we take advantage of automation uh, for healthcare and uh, clinical trial translation in, in particular? Personally, I would peg automation as being on equal footing with engineering or other fields. Uh, we use certain tools in managing and overseeing projects, orders. We use, we're a big believer in checklists. And I think for uh, highly repetitive types of tasks, there are certain template steps, there are certain procedures that can be automated that save the project manager time and energy. I've heard people say that a project manager today was 10 project managers 10 years ago. I don't know if the gap is quite that strident, but automation has clearly helped all of us look at how it affects all of us in our daily lives, and it has included DTS. Uh, Our project managers do work with automation, but we also never want to lose the personal touch. If someone isn't feeling personally heard, then again, that trust factor goes down. That's what we don't want to lose with automation. So you want to scale it properly and use it 
and not ignore automation, but not it's not going to just be the predominant force in a translation order, 50, 75%. It never can be in my view. In closing, Duncan, what is your message to our industry in general? What would you like to share with other LSP executives? You know what? I might have a contrarian message here, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> Go ahead. I would advise a lot of translation companies to raise their pricing. I think that all we hear about is we're becoming a commoditized industry, and the only way to stay in business is to lower your pricing, lower your pricing, lower your pricing. Yes, buyers are becoming more sophisticated in every field. You and I are becoming more sophisticated car buyers. It right. happens across uh, you know, every industry. But I feel that with a lowering of pricing, whether you're a translator, whether you're a translation agency, whether you're a technology provider, I think that that hurts the performance and contribution for the end client. I really do. And I think that if you raise your pricing to a premium level, let's be realistic here. We can't uh, charge $10,000. We, we can't say, well, this is worth a million dollars. So these documents surely must be worth $80,000 to, to localize. When in fact, the market is going to, to quote a tenth of that. We have to accept that there are going to be competing bids. I happen to think competition is good, but I wish more of our peers would raise their prices and value their services, value themselves, because ultimately you're going to be able to retain and attract a higher caliber staff. You're going to make a better experience for your buyer. You're going to be happier. We're happier when we're growing. And that would be my message to everyone, including ourselves. So sustainability through pricing is what you're aiming for. And uh, with that, I would like to say, Duncan, that uh, it was an interesting and fun conversation. I actually really, really enjoyed it. I have a better idea about how translation language services are used in the medical research, clinical research field. And with that, I want to thank you for your time and look forward to speaking with you again on a different topic soon. I really want to thank you, Sultan, for making this podcast available. I had a lot of fun today. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Here we are as usual with my personal analysis of the subject. I think that life sciences in general and clinical trials in particular will see continuous demand for translation and language services. While every LSP may claim that they can operate in this space, it is not easy and as you heard from Duncan, it's not even possible for certain LSPs to meet the demands of this sector given the risks. However, if you are prepared or if you have already been in this space, you may want to focus on things such as data security, compliance with health regulations in North America and Europe, ensuring use of qualified linguists, and using technology to automate repetitive and mundane work. I also believe that you need to have a strong passion for improving people's lives through healthcare communications and that should reflect in everything you do. That brings us to the end of this episode and I hope you enjoyed it. Duncan is a very knowledgeable and experienced executive in our industry and his thoughts and ideas reflect the reality of the industry and the regulated content space. I hope you have been able to take a couple of action items and improve your business. As always, please let me know if you have any topic or guest ideas. Don't forget to subscribe to the Translation Company Talk podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or your platform of choice and give us a 5-star rating wherever you're listening. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode.